So this morning is December 3rd, it's 2006, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is Lions and Bears. Now, don't accuse me of watching too much NFL football, it's not those kind of Lions and Bears. But I think we all know what happens when the Bears play the Lions, right? Mmm, Ditka. Uh, Ditka's not even there anymore, is he? Okay, y'all in Luke 10? Yeah? Yes? No? I will cry and run out of here if you don't answer me. In Luke 10, one of Brad Hall's favorite scriptures I thought I would pick this morning. Starting in uh, the 18th verse, we're getting to the 19th though. It says, He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. One of the most awesome things that you could be told by God, imagine this, these 72 had just gone out, they had experienced demonic activity, they had experienced healings, they had experienced opposition in every regard, and what did Jesus tell them? Nothing will harm you. I'm going to leave that written up here so you can think about it. You might want to write that in your Bible. If you don't write it in your Bible, at the very least, write it on your hearts. How many times have you been at the precipice of making a decision? I mean, right at the verge. in some thought of financial harm, of harm to your reputation, of harm, fear of loss, some harm prevent you from doing what God said to do. And He says no harm will befall you. What an interesting thing to say to a group of 12 people. is larger than that, but think about specific 12 that all except one would be martyred. <laughs> and yet he says no harm will befall you. Isn't that interesting? I want to examine that a little bit this morning as we talk about lions and bears. But I want to tell you first a little more, just to get a thought in your mind, elaborate a little bit about lions. Lions are revered everywhere. I mean, when you say lion, you think of the embodiment of strength. Some even think of nobility and majesty because of strength. I mean, when C.S. Lewis chose a character to represent Jesus in his novels, is it any uh, coincidence that he chose a lion? Lions carry with them this uh, awesome presence. When Matthew and I were first born again, and I had just gotten we had an apartment not much bigger than this place, and uh, we had this old Magnavox TV. And when I say old, it was many, many years older than I was, and it got two channels. And one of the channels that it, that it still got correctly, but in black and white, had the wild kingdom on it like constantly. I don't know what channel that is because since the advent of cable, I don't think I've watched the wild kingdom again. Maybe it was Mutual of Omaha. It was one of those. That's an insurance company, isn't it? Yeah. That was the sponsor. Okay, well, good. It's, you got the old guy out there wrestling with a crocodile and the commentator says, you know, oh my, this couldn't be good. He just lost a toe, you know. I mean, doing insane things with wild animals. And what I was watching were lions. And they showed these female lions. And, you know, the male lion really, he, he doesn't have such a bad life. Uh, I mean, when he does, he pretty well eats what other people kill and then kind of patrols and protects. That's, that's about it. The lionesses were out hunting. And... uh there were only a couple of them, like three or four. And they ran into a pack of hyenas. What an ugly, disgusting, wicked-looking animal is a hyena, huh? Doesn't something in you just kind of, like you just looked under a rock and that's what was staring back at you. 
back legs shorter than the front legs. You know, it's like out of all the animals in Africa, they took the leftover parts and God put together a hyena. Well, these things have this hideous laugh and uh, they were mobbing these female lions. Now, normally, you know, a lion's a match for a hyena. But if there's 30 hyenas and one lion, it was a problem. And this one particular lioness who was getting a little older uh, was kind of caught and isolated. And, you know, you get that cold, hurtful feeling in you because you know this is not going well. And while she's fighting, there's a hyena or two hanging off of her head, a couple hanging off of her hind. You know, they're, they're really starting to, to tear at her. And you know, I'm just at that point where I almost can't look, right? Do you remember having your heart soft like that where you couldn't see? I mean, we get dulled to what's going on on television now. But this was at the time in my life where I was watching no television, okay? And we're watching this one thing. It's kind of a special event. And I'm starting to want to cry. Okay, now, Judah, I hope that doesn't surprise you. This was, we were very young Christians. Pretty well, we watched the, the Wild Kingdom and we watched those old black and white movies like The Robe and uh, Demetrius and the Gladiators. And, and if one of those was bad, Piro would get up and turn it off in the middle of our television. You know, heard he did that the other night at a meeting. Praise God, Piro, you did great. So this lioness is getting bucked down, right? All the hyenas are all over. And then the commentator spits out a name that sounds like speaking in tongues, right? I don't know what it was, but it had like 147 syllables in it. And then the translation across the bottom in English was, He comes with thunder. And off in the distance, you saw this giant mane wrapped around a lion bouncing as this thing was galloping in. The hyenas began to scatter, but couldn't scatter quick enough. As that lion swatted, one paw broke the back of that hyena. And all of the others are taken off in every direction. He didn't let up until he had maimed three or four of them. There were probably eight attacking her. And I had gone from kind of a tearful disposition, not even wanting to look, to leaning off of her, speaking in other tongues. I was so excited. Because something down in me said, yeah, yeah, that's what God is like. That is God. When you're surrounded by horrible, fierce, strong things, pulling at you in every direction, He comes in like thunder to rescue you. And something in me could relate to that and it started to stir my soul. But when you do a biblical study of lions, they're not always good. <laughs> you know, a lion is great if he's on your team, but if you're a hyena, that's kind of a, a bad thing, isn't it? Right? Judah, you watch Lion King? Well, to be a lion, it's not so good to be a hyena, huh? Lions in the ancient world had a special role. Turn with me to Genesis 49. Judah, this is how I named you right here from Genesis 49. Tell me when you're there. All right, two of you are there. Where are the rest? Pop, I can hear you answering right now. All right, we're going to be in Genesis 49. It's a prophecy given to the sons of Israel. It's going to start in verse 8. You ready? Amen. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Boy, what an awesome, awesome thing to tell somebody, huh? He's basically saying, man, you're a successful victor. You're a hunter. Anything that you go out and attack, you win. And what did he liken that to? A lion. 
Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? This is Jacob's way of prophesying figuratively over his son. And man, you are going to be a force to be reckoned with. In fact, who would dare to come against Judah? Because God's with him. That's where I took your name, son. As he goes on from this, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Now he goes on to say some other beautiful things. Is it safe to say that we know who the scepter landed with? It landed with Yeshua, the Hamashiach. The scepter belongs to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Those are very positive uses of the word lion, isn't it? And in both cases, what do they indicate? They indicate strength, nobility, majesty, somebody who is not easily overcome or rivaled, right? Doesn't that make sense? Look at Numbers 23. There's a guy named Balaam who gets hired by a king named Balak. And one of the reasons that he hires him is he wants him to pronounce a curse on Israel. We're going to be in Numbers 23, starting around... Hmm. 18. Then he uttered his oracle. Okay, This is Balaam speaking to Balak after receiving payment to curse Israel. Then he uttered his oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie. Boy, isn't that good news? God is not a man that he should lie. So when, what's that say on the board, Charlotte? So when he said nothing will harm you, he's not a man that he should lie. So we see in the Bible, sometimes Christians go through horrible, difficult things, even to the point of taking their lives. And yet, God's not a man that he should lie, and he said nothing will harm you. We're going to have to resolve that difference today, aren't we? God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Well, that clears up both things. He didn't lie to you when he said nothing would harm you, and he hasn't changed his mind and said, well, I've decided to let something harm you. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? These are rhetorical questions. What's the answer? What should be ringing forth in your ears? No, he doesn't do those things. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. I want you to hear that. When God blesses you, what cannot be done? It can't be changed. No outside force. Nobody outside of this covenant between you and God can change God's blessing upon you. Really matter then what people think about your decisions? Probably not, huh? Keep going with this. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. Isn't that interesting? Don't you know that Israel had some misfortune and they had some misery? And yet from God's perspective, it wasn't even worth mentioning. The Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them up out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done? What was the point of all of Israel's exploits? Because it would be said of Jacob, oh wow, look what God has done. Now you know what's interesting about this? Is this is supposedly a pagan prophet. This guy's not in the nation of Israel. This guy didn't descend from the school of prophets. He didn't have Elijah as his mentor. He was simply a guy who heard from God accurately. 
In fact, he's not doing everything right. He goes down with the idolaters in life. He goes down as an enemy of Israel. You can see he's on the wrong path now. He's accepting money to do something for God. (laughs) But at least he didn't curse them. It's what he was paid to do, and he didn't do it because he said he couldn't. It's not what God did. You might even say we have an arbitrary opinion here. This guy's not even necessarily on God's team. He just has some insight into what God's saying. Even with money being offered to him, he's not lying about God. He's telling the truth. And what is the true testimony about Jacob, the guy who was a deceiver who had been changed to a prince with God? The true testimony was the end result of his life would be something that people would look at and go, oh, wow, look what God has done. I ask you, saints, is that not you? Were you not somebody foreign and without God? Were you not somebody outside of the nation of Israel, outside of the special blessing of God, until He revealed Himself to you? And now that He's revealed Himself to you, you have a new one, just like Jacob. You have a new name, one that Revelation says only the King of Kings will reveal to you. And the whole point of your life is that others will look and go, wow, look what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. How gory, huh? Isn't that? I mean, that's we don't have very many hymns about that. We'll sing about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but we don't sing about drinking the blood of our victims, do we? It's kind of like Psalm 58. You never hear that one committed to to uh, music either about bathing your feet in the blood of the enemy. Those things are never mentioned. And I'm not preaching them this morning as to do. What I want to show you is lions in the ancient culture were revered for their strength and the people of God were often likened unto lions because we're supposed to exude the strength of the Lord. We're supposed to have something about us that others want to lean on that they'll go, wow, I wish that guy was on my side. I wish that guy was on my team. When somebody's being beaten down by the hyenas, they want a Christian to come to their rescue. Too long Christians have been betrayed as mamby-pamby, panty-waist, weak-willed, willy-nilly little guys that don't do anything but sit and hold the hymnal and hide from everything. This is not how the Bible portrays us. What was the blessing over Judah? He'd be like a lion's cub. Who would dare to rouse him? What does Balaam say about the people Israel? So, oh my God, these people are going to be the kind that everybody and says, look what the Lord's done in their lives. These people are like lions returning from their prey. I mean, who can dare to mess with them? That's, that's what was prophesied over them. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. I was speaking earlier and I talked so much about things in the Word that I forget what I've taught in this state and what I've taught in others and how many years ago it was that I taught it and whether or not you've been in the church since then. But I pretty often have talked about David's mighty fighting men. Because lions were so revered, because they were a formidable opponent, it caused God to look sometimes at His people and say, man, you guys are like lions. Because it was something to imitate. It was strength. In fact, when Solomon built his temple, he put lions all over it. Did you all know that? Even the tabernacle of Moses had lions in some places. Uh, the throne of David had lions on it. Like lions or... No, no, no. Like gold lions. Golden lions. Emblems. You've got to love a child, huh? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? So it was something to emulate. But you know what else lions were? They were a fearsome opponent. 
I mean, it's great to say Cassidy is like a lion. She's tenacious. And don't you dare try to pull the Word of God from her. Right? That's great. It's another thing to be in an open field and run into a lion. That wouldn't be so much fun. I told you I was reading a book about David Livingstone a few months ago. And David Livingstone learned to make bricks. You know why he learned to make bricks? Because he had to learn how to make a house. You know why he needed to learn how to make a house? Because he was in a country where he didn't just go buy one. You had to build one. He knew none of those things when he got to Africa. And while he is out cutting down trees and making bricks, he got attacked by a lion in the open country. Now, the good thing is he had a gun. The bad thing is uh, he apparently was not a great shot because he grazed the lion and it jumped on him and crushed his shoulder, shoulder, right? Again, Jesus said nothing will harm you. Isn't that strange? Why would Jesus say nothing would harm you and this guy who's there for Jesus gets bitten by a lion? You know, that was not the end of his life. Some natives that he had witnessed to showed up with spears and they stabbed this thing until it died. Thank God for the natives with spears, right? He crossed to Africa, discovered species of animals, places, and rivers that had never been discovered, almost single-handedly brought awareness in the Western culture of the slave trade that was going on there and the evils of it and changed the minds of America and England about slave trade. And he brought the gospel to people that had never heard it, all with a crushed shoulder. In fact, it took some months to get his body back to England and that they were sure that it was him is his bones still had the teeth mark of lions on them. How about that, huh? You mean Christians might bear on their bodies marks from the enemy? But that wasn't the end of his life, was it? You don't read about David Livingstone, the man who first got to Africa and in a few months was eaten by a lion, do you? In fact, nobody would read that story, would they? But David Livingstone, the man who got to Africa, was attacked by a lion and it didn't stop him. Now that's a story, isn't it? I read it. I even bought it. In 2 Samuel 23, we see a guy that is working for David as one of David's mighty fighting men. And starting around the 20th verse, Benaniah, son of Jehoda, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. Now, one man defeating two, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Especially if they were the best, they were the elite. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed the lion. What's special about that? Well, it's a lion, and he's by himself, and it's in a pit. Can't get away, can't run, you know, can't pick up rocks and throw it. You're in a, li- you're in a pit close quarters with a lion. You know, you ever seen uh, two people mismatched? Uh, well, you guys are holy. Y'all had never watched the UFC fights. <laughs> the lighter one, the taller, thinner one, will always circle the ring. <laughs> He'll try to jab from a distance. He'll attack the stronger person while moving. How would you like to be in a pit, though, in a very small room with a bigger, stronger, fiercer opponent? I had a coach in high school named Boots Garland who used to look at me. Yeah, what am I saying? Everybody in here had that coach who was from Louisiana. My uncle had that coach. My father uh, in Baton Rouge also had that coach. You know, David had that coach. Matt had that coach. But he had this saying. He'd look at me and say, Stevens, you're about to earn yourself 15 seconds in a very small room with the coach. 
<laughs> and I knew what that meant. What he was trying to say is you can't get away from me, right? Ben and I went on a snowy day down into a pit and killed a lion. Then he comes out and kills a seven-foot-tall Egyptian. What is this word trying to describe? The guy's a valiant fighter, right? He's amazing. I mean, he's somebody who is a man among men. The ancient world treats lions as something to be feared, but something to be admired as well. In fact, when you look through the Psalms constantly, you hear David say, I'm surrounded by the strong bulls of Bashan. I'm surrounded by a pack of lions who are tearing and ripping at me. You hear that constantly. I mean, if you look up the word lion in a Bible concordance, it'll show up a couple hundred times. And of the hundred times, 50 of them are in the Psalms. And they're David describing his enemies as lions. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. Then the question becomes, should you be scared of lions in your lives? They're awesome. They're powerful. They're, you know what's scary about a lion and a bear? Let's just be honest. Let's pretend that Nick or Gabriel are out in uh, the open country and they see a lion or they see a bear and they have no gun. What are they scared of? Well, they can't outrun it. It runs faster than they do. They can't outclimb it. Both a bear and a lion climb better than human beings do. So what do you do? What's the naturalist answer? You lay down and pretend to be dead. All too often, this is exactly what Christians do when they encounter lions and bears. We lay down and we pretend to be dead. Maybe if I don't make the enemy mad, he'll just go away. The policy of appeasement in the Christian's life has caused the devil to run rampant over the church. To not even consider the people of God a suitable speed bump on his way to his destination. The first time lions are mentioned in the Word, it's not mentioned about the enemy and how strong the enemy is. It's mentioned about Christians, about people of faith and how strong they are. We need to begin to change our perspective about what a lion is and who should be feared. I once said that I admired the denominations because so many of them taught people about Jesus and got them excited and wanted to be saved from sins and then they sent them off to war without a gun. And so every week you had to talk about how to get saved because they didn't know what to do once they were saved. We can all question whether or not that's very smart. But what you can't question is whether or not that's brave. <laughs> I want to teach you how to hold the gun that God's given you. You are more dangerous than a GI with an M16. The Bible teaches us that you are like lions. You are something to be contended with, something to be feared. Now, you're not the only lion in the forest, and we'll get to that in a second. But Proverbs 22, what does it say? Starting around verse 11. He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. Don't you want to be a friend of God? What do you need to do? Have a pure heart and let your speech be gracious. Hey, isn't that interesting? It's easy to have a pure heart, supposedly, right? Nobody gets to see that. How do you determine what's in a man's heart? It comes out of his mouth and is displayed in his actions. So when your speech is gracious, what does that say about your heart? It's pure. That's a good start, isn't it? That's how you get the king as your friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge. There are things that God knows. He keeps concealed within Himself. 
and He reveals to those who earnestly seek Him. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but He frustrates the words of the unfaithful. Faith is equivalent to trust. In the Bible, when you see the word faith, what it means is trust. He frustrates the words of those who do not trust Him. Have you ever felt your life surrounded by frustration? No peace anywhere you went? The Christian is said to have peace in the storm. The Christian is said to have contentment regardless of his circumstances. And yet so often we're robbed of peace in the storm. So often we're anything but content and we are full of frustration. According to this proverb that has to do with our trust. The sluggard says there is a lion outside. Do you have a punctuation mark in your Bible? What kind of punctuation mark is there? That's said with some excitement. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside or we will be murdered in the streets. In the Proverbs, there is kind of an equation. Somebody who is unfaithful lacks knowledge. He begins to speak words that aren't true. He's too lazy to trust God, so he starts talking about lions outside and being murdered in the street. When the overwhelming message of the Scripture teaches one thing to people of faith, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. The last chapter of Deuteronomy says it. The last chapter of Matthew says it. God has always been reassuring His people, you will go through difficult things so that people will look and go, look what God has done. But I am with you. And it is an unfaithful thing. It is a fearful enemy of the faith that is constantly like a ferret looking out of a hole wondering what will eat you. You are the most dominant force on the planet. You have inside you the supernatural power of God. You know, when we hear messages that talk about the champion inside you, I love that. That's great. I heard a good one this morning. But sometimes the emphasis of these messages tends to be on, oh, you know, poor Adam, his self-esteem is bad. You need to know what a good guy you are according to the Word so that your self-esteem's not bad. Why don't we take that a step further? You are the princes of the universe You're inheriting all that is God's. All the power of God is at your disposal. It's just used at God's discretion. This is how you can look at a word that says nothing will harm you and cling to it. But what you really believe will come out in your actions, not just your words. God calls us to scary things, to big steps. If He didn't, how would anybody go look and say, look what God did in Nick's life? What would they say? Look what Nick accomplished in Nick's life. He'll cause families to move from one place to another. He'll even set it up so that their very best efforts don't prevail in any way so that it is very clear that in the end it was only God that got them from one place to another so that nobody will ever lean and go, oh, well, this is because of their superior finances or their superior wisdom or whatever else. He sets it up so that it is a fearful thing that you must do trusting Him believing that no harm will befall you. And he calls this faith. He calls this trust. Turn with me to Exodus 13. We're going to get going with this here. i got to be the only preacher in the world that gets 30 minutes into a message and then says, okay, we're going to start. Probably not, huh? Probably not the only preacher. This is a disease all of us have. Tell me when you're in Exodus 13. 
In Exodus 13, we have a stage being set. The mighty God comes and says, uh, the God whose name is I Am says, get out of Egypt. He appoints Moses to show him signs and wonders to bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I mean, their national deities were the pun of God's jokes through the, the ten plagues. Every one of the plagues in some way showed a god of Egypt to be deficient. We're talking about awesome, miraculous power with which God displayed His hand bringing Israel out of Egypt. And then watch what He does in the 17th verse. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Well, why arm them for battle if you won't take them through the enemy's territory? Boy, isn't that a good question? Because we serve the kind of God that does not throw you to the wolves on your first day. We serve the kind of God that does not require of you on day one the ability to knock down a giant. He starts somewhere else. Saints, our calling is not something that happens in the future. I find it almost humorous that people still ask me what I feel called to do. What do you think I feel called to do? It's what I'm doing right now. Our lives are supposed to be displaying what God's workmanship is in you. What do you feel called to do? Well, what you're doing daily with a smile on your face. That should be your calling. Our calling is not far away in a galaxy long, long ago. Our calling is not some future event. Your calling is the footsteps that you take today that the Lord ordained. That is your calling. With that in mind, He does not throw you right into battle. We serve a merciful God who has said, man, you are like lions. You are awesome. Who dares to rescue you? And yet, even lions have to start somewhere. A lion cub's not very vicious, is it? Kind of cute, right? You'd like to have one. Play with it for about a month. Then you want to give it back when it wants to gnaw off your leg as a chew toy, huh? Well, it's acceptable when you are new in Christianity to be a little bit intimidated by things, especially if you can't see Daddy God right there by you. But after He has come in, He who comes with thunder, rescued you from the hyenas time and time and time again. Why do we find ourselves still doubting? And at what point do we look and go, My God, when He brought me out of Egypt, I had all the armor I needed. I may not have been in the Philistine country on day one, but I'm ready today. Turn with me to Judges 14. God trains you. He doesn't take you straight to the Philistine country. He does something else because He loves you. Since He's called you to be like a lion, since He's called you to be strong, He trains you with something. You want to hang around people that... Or you want to heal? You hang around people that do. You want to preach with power? Hang around people that do. You want to be full of mercy, full of grace? Hang around people that are and learn to imitate their ways. Well, God, when He wants to train you, shows us how to do it. When Israel came out of Egypt, they did not go straight to the Philistine country. They had to spend some years in the desert learning about the miraculous power of God. But in Judges 14, we find a man named Samson. Starting in the first verse, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. What was Samson born for? He was born for warfare. He was born to destroy the enemies of God. That's what he was born for, to begin the 
deliverance of Israel. The 13th chapter of Judges tells you that. He was specially set apart from birth with a unique appearance even, having taken a Nazarite vow, unique standards in his life that he was to uphold to show everybody it's by God's strength and not by mine that I'm beginning the deliverance of Israel. That was the very calling and function on his life. And what is he interested in doing? Looking for a girl, right? When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. I don't know about how this worked in your household, but it didn't work that way in mine. Otherwise, I'd have went to my parents and said, Hey, look, I saw this beautiful blue-eyed at the time. I thought she had green eyes. Haired woman, I want you to go get her for me. Now, in our society, it is based on a mutual consent. But in this society, it didn't have much to do with what the woman wanted. Anybody ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? That's what that whole show is about. I want you to see why this is in this culture this warrior born under the power of God to begin the deliverance of Israel, it would all start because of his love for a foreign bride. Somebody not quite worthy to be included in Israel, and yet the affection of the spirit-filled warrior was upon her. Are you beginning to see what that could be? I'll give you a little hint. The day he died, he did more damage to the enemy's kingdom than all the days that he lived. Who else does that sound like? Okay, good. Y'all are getting it. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at the time, they were ruling over Israel. Where did this desire for a foreign bride come from? It came from God. God was using this desire as a foreign bride to get Samson to do what he was supposed to do, which was conquer the Philistines. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. If I was going to fight a lion, I'd want one in the last days of his life. I mean, so much arthritis, he couldn't move. You know, maybe some cataracts, so he didn't see me so clear. And I hope to God his falls had fallen out and his teeth, he needed... The lion I would fight would need dentures, okay? But Samson didn't get that one. He got a young one. And it came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. I don't want to go through the rest of this story. His job in life, what he is born for, is to take the attack to the Philistines. But he had to start somewhere else first. He had to start with the lions. Once he began to conquer things outside of the Philistines, his confidence would grow so that on the day of battle, when he was facing the Philistines, he would know what he should do. He would have confidence in what he should do. The reason I'm bringing this up is when Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't go straight in to throw everybody out of Canaan. They had time and experience with God. Teach them how to put their faith or trust in His hand. If every day you wondered what you were going to eat, but bread showed up, rained down from heaven. If every day you wondered what you were going to drink, but it came out of a rock at God's command, pretty soon you ought to be believing that God can do anything, right? Oh, well, that was Israel. Well, what about the Israelites that followed Jesus? If every time there was a big crowd and not enough food, Jesus prayed over it and made more, you would think that the second or third time they would all understand, right? No, they didn't. They thought He wanted them to go buy food. Right? Read John 5 and 6. And you know what? We're not any different. 
I want you to think for a minute. In our audience today, we have people as young as nine years old and people in their 70s. How many times in those years of your life has God already delivered you? How many times has He come through like the lion that rushed in coming with thunder and rescued you from the hyenas? How many times? And how quickly do we forget? Why is it that when we stand upon the, the peak of what we're supposed to be doing in that moment, why is it that we're worried that harm will befall us? You're still here. How many times have you faced it before? How many times? God is merciful. He's working with Samson. He's showing Samson through the events of his life that he's built for this purpose. If Samson came away with nothing else, you know what he ought to know from this? When the Spirit of God comes upon me, even a lion's not a match for me. I tore it apart as easily as I would have a young goat. Now, you don't tear young goats apart. This is just a figure of speech. He's saying, I cut through it like I cut through butter. Right? Later on, Samson's own people tie him up with new ropes. But when the Spirit of God comes on him, they fall off like charred flax. Do you think that all of this might be so that one day when Samson is standing in an arena, chained, blind, humiliated, defeated between two pillars, he might believe that God can do it again and kill everybody in his death and accomplish on the last day of his life what he was called for? But he didn't get there overnight. Sometimes we read the stories. Uh, lately, Steve's been reading a book about Smith Wigglesworth, right? Smith Wigglesworth raised 23 people from the dead, but that was not his first day of ministry. It was not the first time he had ever prayed for somebody, praying for somebody from the dead. He'd been through years of personal struggle, learning how to defeat the lions in his life, learning that with God, even a lion is as easy to defeat as a goat. He had been learning that he was a lion and that the enemy was only like a lion. You understand the perspective of the Bible? Your lives up until this point have been giving you a chance to learn to put your trust in God and see yourselves as the Word shows you in the enemy for what he's trying to imitate. Peter never said that the enemy was a lion. He never said that that is a huge misnomer. He said the enemy is like a lion. Our friend Reinhard Bunker says he's a chihuahua with a megaphone. That's a bold thing to say, isn't it? How many times have you heard Christians act like, ooh, don't say something like that, you'll make him mad. Makes you wonder who the lion is, doesn't it? Guys, we are dangerous, and we are dangerous to the enemy. I'm not talking about spiritual arrogance. I'm talking about understanding who you are. we got some young guys in here. We all love those old martial arts films. In fact, these guys joke about all kinds of things I don't understand, fluorescent ninjas and... All kind of weird things to me, right? But I remember in all of those Kung Fu Theater Sunday movies, there was one old guy who looked like he was not very impressive. He was usually dressed like the gardener or with the drunkard or something, right? Even in The Karate Kid, we had a botanist janitor that is some Kung Fu master, right? This is Christians. Christians are supposed to be meek and mild in every way except where it counts. We're supposed to be tenacious spiritually. We're supposed to grab hold of the promise of God, refuse to let it go, and fight with the enemy. That doesn't change on your 40th birthday. That doesn't change on your 50th birthday. It doesn't change on your 60th, 70th, or 80th birthday. We are called to take the fight to the enemy. 
Do you know why? Jesus gave a blanket command to everybody. Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. There was no age exclusions. You won't find retirement anywhere in the Bible. It's not biblical, period. Now, I'm not telling you, I don't want you to retire from your secular jobs. That's like laying down a hobby so that you can take up what you were born for, which is God's work. It doesn't matter what we think our limitations are. God's Word calls us lions. He's been spending your lives teaching you what you're capable of. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5. Come on, you all sleeping through what I'm doing or is this striking a chord? I want to tell you a secret. The times in your life that you think that you are the strongest and most capable and most ready to do something for God is seldom when He would use you. Most of the time, He waits for you to get to the end of your rope, for you to have killed an Egyptian and spent 40 years in exile, for you to have messed up royally so that you can really be useful for Him. So if you're in a place where you feel like glory has passed you by, if you're in a place where you feel like you've missed your opportunity, you smile on the inside because it's probably just about to smack you in the face. I was born again at 18 years old and I was fiery. I went straight I went straight to the streets. I everybody who would go because I wanted to make an impact for Jesus. I was sure at 19 years old I would be ready for the calling on my life. I was sure at 20, then 21, then 22, then 23. By the time I was 24 or 5, I'm looking around going, what's wrong with these people? You know? They're all trying to hold me back. I'm scared when I saw that Star Wars movie. The too much of my heart was revealed in that thing. God waits for you to get to a place where you often feel inadequate so He can show you that He's made you competent. I'm not talking about a self-sufficient... I'm talking about a trust in God that breeds in you the idea, with God I can advance against a troop. I can scale the mountain heights. I can beat the enemy as fine as the dust of the earth. But it's only with God. You in First Peter 5, 8? What's it say? Read it loud. Come on. You need to be self-controlled. You need to be alert. You have an enemy and he's prowling around. He is like a lion. He's not a lion. He's like one. He's trying to imitate one. The same way that he imitates angels and masquerades as an angel of light, the Scripture says. He's looking for someone to devour. Now, Peter was not a Jew, was he? Uh-oh. Peter was a Jew, wasn't he? So when Peter opened his Bible to study, right, he went to the local Christian bookstore and he bought Zondervan NIV. What book was he reading? Well, Peter hadn't made his contribution yet for NIV to pick up on, and neither had Paul, and neither had Mark, neither had any of these other guys. For the first 200 years of the church, what we basically have to read from is the Tanakh. We have the 39 books of the Old Testament. So if Peter is referencing something here, if he's got something in his mind when he says the devil's like a roaring lion, you need to resist him. You need to know who you are so that he will flee from you. Where do you think he might have gotten the story? Oh, that's right, Nick. It's in 2 Kings 17. I want you to hear something. When these apostles, when these teachers, when these prophets in the New Testament got revelation, when they were excited about something that they had learned in the Word and then are writing letters that have become Scripture, they got excitement, they got that zeal, they got that revelation. 
from the pages of the Older Testament. It makes up three quarters of your Bible. 39 of the 66 books. Read it. Learn it. Love it. Study it. So that you might better understand what you've been given. Too long has this book been considered old and therefore obsolete. Too long has it been considered written for a different audience. They were law. We are grace. What a lie. God has always been grace. I read to you last week in Acts where Paul met with Jews, men who were present-day Jews, not yet believers in the Messiah. He presented the knowledge of the Messiah to them and said, continue in God's grace. Friends, you can't continue in something you were never in. This book from beginning to end is one message. Trust God. He will give you grace where you need it. Unmerited favor where you need it. He will supply strength to you. He'll supply whatever you need. Put your trust in Him and act like it. One message from beginning to end. There's just been greater revelations in certain areas at certain times for specific circumstances. None of it is old or obsolete. Read it. Learn it. Love it might even say, talk about it while you're on the road before you lay down at night. When you go in, and that, oh, that's right. It tells us to do that. You know, in 2 Kings 17? In 2 Kings 17, what we have is the area of Samaria being resettled. Samaria is north of Jerusalem. It gives us the idea later of Samaritans breeds between Jews and Gentiles. Well, the way they got there was when the king of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, he took Jews into exile. And when he took them into exile, he made them intermarry with people. Then he sent Jews back mixed with Gentiles to the region of Samaria. So these people had some Jewish blood in them and they had some Gentile blood in them and there was a problem because the truth was being diluted. This is why in Jesus' day, to be from Samaria was as bad as being a Gentile because the truth had been diluted. Do you remember Jesus at the woman at the well incident? Our people say worship here on this mountain. Your people worship there. He said salvation's from the Jews. He said it straight right then. The ancient civil war in Israel that had gone on from the time of Solomon's son forward was settled right there. The Jews in Judea had kept their, their lives pure and their understanding of the gospel pure. What they needed was the additional faith to believe in the Messiah. The Samaritans were off base. This is how they got that way, starting in verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. What was the goal? Delude the holy stock. This has gone on since Genesis 6 when even angels defected from the heavenly realms took wives from the sons of men and produced some ungodly offspring called Nephilim. God was so upset He wiped it out with a flood. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So He sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. Why were the lions killing the people? Because they weren't worshiping the Lord. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what He requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and to teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. 
When Peter is talking to Christians and he says, hey, the devil is like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. I want you to understand something. The devil is no threat to you when you are in God's will. The devil is no threat to you when you're walking in the revelation God has given you. He's something for you to trample on. He gave you power in Luke ten nineteen to trample on all the power of the enemy. When is the devil a threat to you? In those areas of your life where you are not worshiping He's a threat to you in those places in your life where your understanding and therefore your trust is incomplete. Then you should be scared. When you are not standing on the rock that is the Word that has been revealed to you from heaven for your life, you should be scared because He is an awful lot like a lion. But when you are on your way to attack the Philistines where God has sent you, the youngest, strongest lion can attack you and you will rip it to pieces like a young goat. He's training you, saints, so that you will know where you have sure footing and where you don't have sure footing. He's trying to teach you what He requires of you. He wants you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before your God. This is what He wants in every area with no exceptions. Traffic is not an exception. Stressful financial situations are not exceptions. When Achan took into his tent something that God said, do not take into your tent, the word was liable. He had made himself liable for destruction. He had every reason then to be fearful of the enemy. He had every reason because he was no longer standing on sure footing. But when you're standing on the rock of God's word, doing what he told you to do, when he tells you to do it, no harm will befall you except that which has been ordained for you. Is it really harm for you at the end of your life to get on all fours and have a Roman chop off your head so that that second you will be in glory? Paul's been immortalized in the kingdom of God for that. That's not harm. They struck down the tent that he might get a building. But it didn't mean his life wasn't difficult. And what's the result? We all look and go, Oh my God, look what the Father has done through Paul. And you admire him. Why should your life be different? Why should your life be a life of ease? Why should your life be a life of safety and contentment, never risking anything? I keep reading that quote from Teddy Roosevelt about those poor, cold, timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat and about the brave man who dared to err greatly because I want us to begin to churn up inside us the saving faith that snatched you from the pit of hell and delivered you into the power of God. I want to begin to act like you are somebody to be contended with in the kingdom. I want the enemy to know you will be walked on no longer. I want you to realize what you have in Christ. Daniel and Daniel 6. Turn with me there is attacked for his godly behavior. There is a king in the land, and the king has some advisors that trick him. Into making a law. This law that Daniel violates says, you cannot pray to anybody except the king. You can't bow down and worship anybody except the king. Now, if you're an advisor to the king, the king is like a lion to you. He's stronger. He's noble. He's majestic. And in every way, he seems superior to you by the world's standards. You have no choice but to cower before him. Not Daniel. 
Although he was in exile in a foreign land, captive, name changed, abused in almost every way, he was snatched from his own people and brought in chains to Babylon, knew who the real lion was. And watch what happens. Starting in verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home upstairs to his room where the window opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Saints, you need to have no fear of doing what is right. You need to not count the cost any longer. When you got born again, you counted the cost once for all, said, though they slay me, yet will I love Him. If it costs me everything, I still will follow Him. All of those songs we grew up singing, you need to have no fear of doing what is right. If God tells you to walk, you walk. If He tells you to sit, you sit without fear of doing what is right. Too often we make our choices based on the outcome. We judge our success based on what happened. A Christian's success is judged by his obedience, not his success. Do you understand that? A Christian is not judged by the outcomes. A Christian is judged by his obedience. Daniel hears a decree. He says, hey, we're going to kill you if you... Daniel, upon learning about the decree, what does he do? He goes straight home, begins to pray. Now, he's not doing this to spite them. He's not going home saying, they said I couldn't pray, so watch me. I'm going to pray. Well, I've seen that in the public school system, right? We're going to show them. What? Show them your carnality? Look, I love to meet you at the poll things. I think it's great. But Daniel did not have a haughty spirit that was just trying to shove this in the king's face. You're going to find out he and the king had a special relationship. It had always been his custom to pray. He simply wasn't going to do anything differently because of the threat upon his life. Look at this. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group from Daniel, praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Do you not, did you not publish a decree? During the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel was aware that he's going to be tossed to the lions if he continued to be faithful to God. But what's the end of the story? What happens? Was Daniel devoured? Was that the end of his life? You need to have no fear of doing what is right. When is the only time you should be fearful of a lion? when you're out of God's will, when you're not standing on His Word. Saints, there is a place for the fear of God and the consequences of walking away from God. All too often in this greedy gross mentality, this sloppy agape that is lavished upon us from pulpits all over the United States and even from this one at times, we begin to lose the idea that there are things that should make us afraid. I've gotten to a place in my life where many times when I'm considering the outcome of doing something and what the consequence will be for doing it, there's this other thought that rises in me. The consequence from God for not doing it. I've got a lot invested in the kingdom at this point. You might even say that my whole life, my whole lot has been thrown in with the king. We're in the same boat. Where he goes, I go. Where I go, he goes. If I hop out now, 
I'll surely drown. You need to have a burn the ships mentality. When the Cortez got to the New World, burn the ships behind him so nobody would be tempted to go home. Christians need to have a burn the ships mentality. All or nothing with God. The only thing you have to fear is not being obedient and therefore becoming liable to the enemy. But when you're obedient, not necessarily successful, just trying to be obedient, He will anoint you. He'll shut the mouths of hungry lions. I want you to hear this witness that happened. Skip on down to verse uh, 16. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. The king didn't even want Daniel to die. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Come on now, has nobody ever sealed your situation? Craig is thus and so. It will never change. Sealed, done, delivered. And yet God had a different plan. They threw you to the lions waiting for you to die because they didn't like your behavior. They thought for some reason Lindsay doesn't. They sealed your fate right there and walked away thinking it was done. But come on, praise God. We serve the kind of God that will shut the mouths of the lions and the so-called nobles. 24 hours later, who's smiling? A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. wonder why. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent His angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in His sight. Nor have I ever done wrong before you, O king. This king goes on to be so moved by this that he issues a decree that people worship this God of Daniel. And what was Daniel's testimony? He served God continually, day and night, even when thrown in the lion's den. If somebody hired Balaam, to prophesy about your life, what would they say? If a king were writing a decree about your life, would it say, here was Eric who served God on a part-time basis when it was convenient or expedient for him to do so? Who is Eric who acted like a lion in battle one out of ten days and nine out of ten put his head between his legs and cried like a girl? What would it say? What a testimony Daniel has left for us. Not that he got everything right, but he dared. He dared greatly. He had nothing to fear from doing what was right. The only thing that you should fear is not doing what God tells you to do. In Psalm 34, we're told that lions may grow weak and weary, but the righteous will be provided for. We're told that a righteous man will have many troubles but the Lord will deliver him out of the hand of them all. Right? Have you all never read that? David in Psalm 34, This poor man cried to the Lord, and he answered me. 
Not this great and mighty lion. David was in a broken place where he needed God's help. And what God told him, and he wrote in the Psalms forever, was that a righteous man may have many troubles, but you'll be delivered from them all. We're going to face lions and bears because it is a precursor to something. You need to know at the lion and bear stage that you are with God and God is with you so that when you face the Philistines, you will win. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. Come on, y'all got one more Scripture in you, don't you? Tell me when you're there. 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, 17.32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. What's the situation? We have a nine plus foot tall giant. Every man in Israel terrified, including the king. Nobody will go to face this guy. We all know the story. David goes to fight him. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. He has been a fighting man since his youth. We have the voice of faith. Let nobody lose heart. I will go and do this because God is with me. We have the voice of fear, doubt, disbelief, the opposite of faith. You were not able. Saints, these same two voices are present inside you. One is the Spirit of God and the other is your flesh. The Spirit of God says, don't you lose heart, Brent. It can be done. You will do it. And your flesh says, no, I'm just a boy. I can't. The Spirit of God says, come on. Turn up the faith that's in you. Don't you trust God? And the flesh says, we can't. The cost is too great. All of us have a little David and a little Saul. How do you overcome Saul's argument? Verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saints, it was not David's first day trusting God when he out there and struck down Goliath. He had had a lifestyle that taught him over and over and over. God had told him to tend sheep through his father, his authority on earth, so he was tending sheep. When something came in the way of him tending sheep, he attacked it and killed it. didn't matter whether it was bigger or stronger because he was doing what his father told him. Samson was being drawn by God into conflict with the Philistines. The lion was merely a training obstacle, so he tore it apart. For David, he's being drawn as a shepherd for all of Israel, but it had to start somewhere. And it started in the fields. And he learned the attitude that God wanted to prevail in his life that later would be said was the heart of God by being a shepherd. And when something threatened a sheep, he killed it. 
This Philistine was like every other obstacle that he had ever come against. It looked different. It said different things. Other people said different things about it. But in the end, every obstacle is an opportunity to overcome. Where did I get that idea from? Oh, that's right. It's a chart on our wall in this church. I want you to knock down giants in your life. Psalm 91 says you will trample on the cobra and the lion. God will be with you in the trouble and deliver you from it or through it. I want us to learn that all of the trouble in our lives are merely lions and bears. And after a while, you start to look at it and go, this is my, rode- my first rodeo. Get serious. Do you really think I'm going to fall to this devil? Step on its head and move on. By the time David struck down Goliath, he was so excited, he cut off his head and carried it around with him like a trophy. He did. The next three or four places you see David show up with, he's carrying the head of Goliath. In fact, the Word says, still carrying the head of Goliath. Look it up. Read it. You know why? It was a trophy of what God had done through him. Now, eventually he set it down, just like Samson set down his jawbone, because there would be another fight. The lion prepared David for the bear. The bear prepared David for the Philistine. The Philistine prepared David for the nation. That's how this works. Saints, every trial in your life is just a stepping stone to show you how to increase the trust that you have in God. And every trial ought to feel like the biggest one you face, just like every stair ought to be a little higher than the one before it. You are ascending towards a trust in God. You are ascending in your thoughts towards a trust in God. That's good news. That can cause you, like James said, to look at a trial and rejoice. I don't have time to teach on it today, but Paul had this same attitude. He's in jail. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he says, Oh, man, the same God who is with me in this jail cell who has delivered me from the mouths of lions, will deliver me safely into His eternal kingdom. That's what he said. He didn't learn that in a single day. He learned that from a consistent trust in God in seeing victory after victory after victory. You know, if a heavyweight contender has smart management, they'll pick fights they know he can win in the beginning because they want him to grow in confidence. They want him to begin to believe that he can be the champion of the world. Several weightlifting records, when they were broken, they were broken because the coach lied to the athlete and told them that it was less weight than it actually was. This is because our attitude affects the way that we act. Your belief and your barriers that you put in your life are made real in our actions if you're not careful. We need to have a faith that goes way beyond that, that looks back and says, wow, The devil's been trying to kill me since the day I was born and I'm still here. What shall I fear? Or you could just sing the song with Matthew and it'd be another song. I want it to be the anthem of our lives. There are people in this church that are daring greatly, that are moving their whole lives, that have risked a lot just to be a part of the church, much less for the kingdom of God. Around the world, your brothers and sisters are risking their very lives for the gospel. None of you have had to resist to the point of shedding your own blood. That's just exactly what the writer of Hebrews said to his church to encourage them. Guys, be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. 
and He's already overcome so much in your life, I ask you, what shall you fear? What should you possibly be scared of? Learn this phrase. The same God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and that of the bear will deliver me from this too. And let it be the anthem in your life. Jesus said nothing will harm you. Believe it. And then act like it. Stand up and let's pray.